I don't want to freak anybody out, but it's January 12th, and this is our 12th episode numbers. Welcome to the Cause I Have To podcast, where living your dream is the only option. We try to keep this quick. Okay. Trying to get you know entice people to listen. We're Maybe don't stretch out. We're the following words. your. <laughs> we're following your dream is the only option. Thank you. Our guest this week is composer multi <laughs> is composer multi instrumentalist Michael Lord. I'll tell you what my basic thought was is that I really love music and I really just wanted to do music. I was very aware of liner notes. And I was very aware of starting to see the same names on liner notes. And I was very aware of all the people behind the scenes making these great albums whose names weren't actually on the albums on the outside, but they were on the inside. I think I gravitated more towards the idea of songwriting and, and being part of the songwriting process, and, but not being the person with the face on, on the album. And that pretty much worked out for him. It sure did. Take a listen. Welcome to the program, Michael Lord. All right. My first question to you, of course, our show is about living your out your dreams, living your dharma. Were you, in fact, born with an instrument attached to you? Not that I'm aware of, but I am aware of that most things that um, are told to me or told to us by our parents, um, we have to take their word for it because, um, you know, who knows? Our birthday might not even be our birthday. There's a lot of information from zero to four that you just kind of, well, you roll with, but then you get to be old enough that you go, I wonder if that's true, but you just, you just, just rolling with it's an easier idea. But no, not to my recollection. Okay. So in your bio, it says you started playing piano at age five. So do you recall that? Or is that something that your parents told you yeah. to write in the bio? Oh, you do? No, no, no. I really recall that a lot. We got a grand piano. My dad played a little bit and we got a grand piano and my older sister started taking some uh, piano lessons. And then, you know, I really wanted to take piano lessons. And my mom said, not now you got to wait until you're a little older. And like, I think she meant like six and because that's how old my or maybe seven, because that's how old my older sister was. And then and, but I just like convinced her and I would go over and I would and I banged on the piano and I said, yeah, but but I don't know how to play. So it sounds like this. And I just start banging keys. I said, don't you think it would sound a lot better if I knew what I was doing? So anyway, she um, got me signed up with the uh, neighborhood piano teacher who basically lives just down the hill from us. That's so funny that even at age five, you're you're like, hey, I mean, wouldn't it sound better if I could play? I mean, come on. I doubt that I said it like that, but that's what I, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. And that was the, I think the, you the did. Song. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. Yeah. Would you but, say, but, but, um, but, but the, the, the thing is that actually <laughs> happened before, just to, just to tell you, the thing that happened before piano though, was that I got a guitar and I was going to take guitar lessons and I went for one guitar lesson and my vague memory of that was going home and practicing how to make the B string sound like the E string, you know, wow. so you're fretting oh, it in a nice. good fret like some sort of, yeah. and, and that was it. But I didn't have a case for the guitar. And I was, I was told my mom, I really wanted to get it. I really wanted to have a case. And she said, no, I can't, we can't get you a case right now. And so I said, well, I'm not playing guitar then. So I quit. She said, then you can quit. And I said, fine, I quit. So I think I had one guitar lesson and I quit because I couldn't get a case for the little cheap acoustic guitar that um, I had. Yeah. That's hilarious. That's amazing. Oh my but you God. had a piano, no case, but you had a full grand piano. I, I don't know if the grand piano uh, was there at that point in time. 
but yeah. it would have been, you know, close to around it. Yeah. So, I mean, your curiosity, even with changing a string to a different note, I mean, that is something amazing. No, that to wasn't curious. That was what with. the lesson was. That, that's what uh-huh. the lesson was. But, oh, I didn't, wow. but I didn't, but it was kind of in my memory, in my brain, but I didn't really realize what he was trying to have me do until, you know, like I was 12 or 13. I had some friends who played guitar and I kind of learned to play guitar initially through them showing me stuff. And then that was like, oh, you can turn that. Oh, that's what he was trying to have me do. Got it. All right. And then so. how much of all this was like, did you teach yourself through just by playing by ear? No, no, no. Well, the piano, no. I mean, piano is very kind of traditional sort of lessons. And in my opinion, at my age, it pretty much dawned on me maybe about 15 years ago that uh, my, my, my learning was so dominated by reading that it really didn't benefit my ear. Piano is an interesting, you know, it's any keyboard instrument is very, very different than how other instruments work, you know, because it's linear and it's black and white and it's topographical. The the black keys are raised from the white keys. The guitar can be linear, but it's not necessarily linear, but at least it shares that. But when you look at other instruments, I mean, and of course, you know, guitars and violins and cellos and all those string instruments, they kind of share that same idea. There's, there is some linear to it, but, but it also kind of jumps around because you can jump over strings and you can achieve the same pitch in several places, depending on the note. But the thing is, for the piano, it gets very like cerebral and intellectual because the note you're playing, you play through just complete sight. Oh, well, that looks that's that's what middle C looks like. So that's what I'm playing it. That's what E flat looks like. So I will be playing that. That's the second raise. That's the second of the two black notes in the group of two. And so it becomes very sight oriented and and intellectual and cerebral, and you don't necessarily listen to the pitch that much. Well, um, what about people who so, play who are blind? Well, well, I can't speak to guess, that touch. because I'm yeah. not. But the way the piano works so well for anybody who's blind is that it's basically Braille because it has the raised yeah. notes. So that's how they find. And of course, that's why Stevie Wonder plays in a lot of black keys. You know, because they are raised oh. and, and it, it's more comfortable. But saying that, I mean, honestly, the key of E flat's a pretty it's it's a horrible key to have to read in, but it's a great key to play in. Yeah. So I, I definitely got brought up through reading, and then that reading was accentuated by drum lessons, which I started when I was in fifth grade. And that was very much reading through books and starting with rudiment books like God rolls, 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 and the Buddy Rich thing, and then reading through beat things that had beats in it, like the cookbook and Carmen Apice's, uh Realistic Rock and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's very intensive on reading. And it, it wasn't until I kind of got into playing guitar, which was no reading, that I found myself starting to react to things that I heard. And then I one day I thought to myself, well, wait, why did I go to that fret? And I said, oh, man, I'm actually hearing music for, I think, the first time. So guitar really played wow. a big role in that it hasn't been a big reading instrument for me. I mean, and, and even if you're looking at guitar tab and the treble clef happens to be going in conjunction with the tab, don't, I don't, I mostly look at the tab and I, I tend to look at the treble clef suddenly when I go, now nah, the tab's wrong. What, what note do they want? Okay. Or, you know, you use it right. as a way to check itself. What would you say is your favorite love instrument? Would it be the guitar or piano or 
Well, it kind of goes back and forth, but but right now um, it's, it's just kind of the guitar because there's so many different animals of it, and you know all the different pickup configurations and electric versus acoustic and arch top versus hollow body, semi hollow body versus. Yeah. I mean, there's so many cool things, and there's so much history involved in it, and you know the piano's got an upright, and it's got a grand piano, and there. I mean, there's a lot of variances on the way pianos sound, but there's just I don't know. Just this whole What's your favorite guitar? With, oh, gosh. Do you have a favorite um, that you own I, I, and one that you'd love to own? Well, there are a lot that I want to own, and there are a lot that I do own. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love Telecasters, and, and I love Les Pauls. I think those are the two that I love yeah. the most. Um, Les Pauls, I'm def- I've always been a Les Paul guy for sure. But Not a big you, Tele uh, fan, but I mean, I've played them. But there's some. Uh, I mean, Tom I, Teddy I, I, played I really a lot of Telecasters, right? Tom was more of a, a Rickenbacker guy, but yeah, he plays the Tellys, he plays some Firebirds. I actually have a great photo print of Tom Petty, and he is playing the Telecaster. I was a big Springsteen fan growing up. I had a uh, poster of him on my wall, so I that was um, the first guitar I got was a Telecaster when I was a kid. I, I was just gonna say, but but I think I'm just basically in love with music in general. You know, like right now, I, I for Christmas, I got this kind of inexpensive reissue of the, the Silvertone guitars, and they're just made over in Indonesia. And I'm telling you, yes. it's an amazing guitar. I was, I'm blown away by it. And it's sitting right next to this 70th anniversary Esquire Fender that I've had for a couple months. And I just, not plugging them in, just A, B, how they sound, how they sustain, what they sound like, not plugged in. And I'm telling you, the Silvertone's better, at least to my ear. It's like, Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm blown away for 400 bucks. <laughs> that's so. that's so cool. I, I I once I only saw this once. It was an acoustic, it was an Epiphone, but it was an Epiphone with an F, not a PH, and it was made in really? Korea. And I saw it at Guitar okay. Center. This was like probably 15 years ago, and I and I literally strummed one chord and I was like, "Holy shit." And I put it back for 1 second and that was the last one and I've never got to, I've never seen them ever again. And they were one of the greatest acoustics with, I've ever heard in my life. I worked with Mark Ford for a, a little bit. And Mark's, like, I think, best known for being in the Black Crows. And we were having a conversation mm-hmm. one time. And, I, well, he just, the guitar he had that he was playing. And I said, I, 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 I asked him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, I found this out on tour in a pawn shop. And I just kind of, you know, casually just kind of asked if I could play it. And I just strummed it, not even plugged in. I was like, oh, and he's like, I, okay, no, don't don't act too yeah. excited. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, don't, don't act too excited. And that's 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 what he got. But another friend of mine is very into. Um, he's a player, but he's also a designer, and that he has been the right hand person to Eddie Van Halen for everything that EVH makes. He is absolutely in love with all the um, made in Japan guitars, like the Geckos. And it, you know, there's this period of the um, guitars that are made in Japan, especially during the 80s, the Ibanezes, and and then some of these brands that we don't know in the States here. So well, the, I think it's the Geckos or is it Greco? Gre- it's Greco. Greco and they're, yeah. they're um, yeah, Greco. They're amazingly, they're, they're, they're amazing guitars. When in your life did you realize that this is something you had to pursue and that you thought you could make a career out of it? Um, was there ever that decision well, or did you just keep playing? I'll tell you what my basic thought was, is that I really love music and I really just wanted to do music. By the time I got to about 15 years old, I was taking lessons from a guy named Dr. Paul Pittman. 
here in the San Fernando Valley. He had a PhD in uh, classical music performance. And, you know, he had a nice house in Encino and he had this space built up above his garage. And he had this beautiful Steinway piano in there. And this is where he taught. And I was like, you know what? If I could just even do this, that would be fantastic. <laughs> and, yeah, wow. and that's really kind of where I was at. And to me, I got to a certain point where music's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things about music that are vocational. You just got to know how to do certain things. And so the task is to learn them. I mean, it's not as arbitrary as like, I need to get in a rock band and I want to try to get a record deal and I need to try to get my song on the radio. And, you know, that, that in itself is a whole actually somewhat pragmatic thing to do as well. But Although you did um, have done that, right? You've done yeah, all those yeah, things. Yeah. yeah. So, which is why I'm saying that's actually kind of a pragmatic thing as well. But being, you know, a teenager still, and just saying, well, I got to learn the vocabulary. So I was very involved in learning all the music theory and taking the courses at CSUN um, as a kid, the Certificate of Merit program and moving things up and learning the repertoire. And that was that. And I figured, well, as long as I got that, I, I could be doing this. And which seemed to me to be pretty relaxing and, and private also, private. The idea wasn't I was going to go teach a class somewhere. It was like, no, no, this is... The piano above the garage, the nice piano in the nice house above the garage with, you know, <laughs> the high end students. That was <laughs> anyway. So so there so there was that. And then I think that my idea more on a professional sense that that exceeded that was I was very aware of everybody. I was very aware of liner notes and I was very aware of starting to see the same names on liner notes. And I was very aware of all the people behind the scenes making these great albums whose names weren't actually on the albums on the outside, but they were on the inside. Mm, and yeah. it could be songwriters. It could be backup singers. It could be guitarists. You know, I mean, obviously you see the name Steve Lukather everywhere. Um, right. And then, you know, of course you, you see that he's in his own band as well. So you weren't chasing fame. No, not, not at all. So I thought, Honestly, I thought the coolest guy in the world at that point was there are two people that I thought were super cool. One of them was Jim Valance, who co-wrote all those great Brian Adams songs with Brian Adams. And the other guy was Mutt Lang. Because when I looked at Def Leppard albums, I would see his name as a co-write on pretty much every single song. Wow. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. And then Jim Valance, I'd look at the Brian Adams stuff and it was like, man, there's Jim Valance. Who's Jim Valance? And so he's co-writing every single song, Run to You. Wow. He's co-written, Cuts Like a Knife. He's co-written, he's co-written all these songs. So I think there was definitely, and maybe to a lesser degree, David Foster. So yeah, there nice. was a point of like seeing David Foster's name on all these songs by Chicago. And then even seeing, you know, oh, he produced The Tubes. And, you know, here's a song, Talk to You Later. There's Lukather's name. Wait. So I kind of really, it was, I think I gravitated more towards the idea of songwriting. And, and being part of the songwriting process, and but not being the person with the face on on the album, right? Or those were some of the things that you know I like remember thinking as I walked a mile home from school from Coldwater Canyon to Woodman. <laughs> when did you start uh, becoming a composer? Well, that's where composing starts is songwriting. Yeah. So well, I tried to write my first song. Um, 
God, I mean, I don't know. It kind of seems probably late when I compare myself to people like Stevie Wonder, but um, that's never a good thing to do, by the way. Don't compare yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I I definitely know that in eighth grade, I wrote an actual piece of music and the guy who was married to my grandmother at the time, uh, was married to my grandmother. So I guess my step-grandfather, he had a musical background and he helped me transcribe it. And he called it Mike's Tyke. But, it, you know, it was just some sort of little instrumental piece that I wrote. And it was part of me trying to, you know, use it as a way to apply to the, you know, private school for ninth grade. Nice. That was that was that was why it needed to be transcribed or something like that. So that was the first thing, and it was basically A minor, G F, and an E major. Which, <laughs> I like it. That's yeah. Well, yeah, you know, straight cat strut. It's like yeah. I was gonna say that's a it's, simple, straightforward. You know, that's, yeah, that's you know, you got the five chord that brings you back to the one right there. And uh, well, you know, Stairway to Heaven only goes A minor, G to F. They never get to the E really. Yeah. Well, you now they 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 that's do. Funny. But in the verse, but, you know, in, in the more rock part anyway. So, By the way, he could talk about every single song exactly like this. <laughs> Just for everyone listening. <laughs> you bring up so, some song, you'd be like, oh, you mean that one that goes from this to this to this? And who, you'll tell me who wrote it. It started with the songwriting. And, and yeah. um, as you become more aware of things, you know, you, you notice like, oh, well, George Gershwin writes songs, but he also does this other thing over here. And then by the time I'm, I don't know, like whenever Toy Story came out and you, and I realized it's like, well, Randy Newman's a singer songwriter and he just did a score for Toy Story. Huh. And then you kind of become away. Wait, wait a minute. Danny Elfman wrote the theme for the Simpsons. Wait, there's right. another guy in a rock band. And so there's another songwriter guy, but this guy's in a rock band. And so you start to just be aware that there's more that you can do with music than, you know, write songs. And, be in and, a band. And, be in a band or write songs yeah. for a band or write songs, however it is that they end up being recorded by some other artist than you. But, you know, definitely people like Elfman and Randy Newman made me pretty aware of that. Also Henry Mancini, because there's another guy that's writing straight up songs. And then he's also, wait, he scored the Pink Panther. I mean, that's, that's some of the things that start to move it towards like, huh, you know, that would be a cool thing to do. Right. But it definitely wasn't like now where, You've got all the different places with the different film and music programs. And, you know, I'm going to go and get a four-year degree in film and television scoring. There there was none of that. Right, right. There was none of that. It was, I was going to go to the Brickley College of Music to get away from Los Angeles and my evil stepfather. That was like, that's that's your drive. That was was my drive. That was my drive. How far away is the Brooklyn College of Music? It's in Boston. Fantastic. Perfect. Bye. Get in there. That's that's what it was. And then I got there and I realized that with having already passed and taken AP Music Theory, I kind of knew pretty much anything that they were going to teach me. And what I didn't know could be explained pretty quickly. Right, right. So did you not, did you stay the whole time or no? No, no, no. no. I, I, I was there for about three months and I got in an argument with my arrangement teacher. I didn't want to do a, a horn arrangement. And he said, well, why not? And I said, because I don't plan to do horn arrangements. I plan to hire somebody because that's what I'd see on everybody doing on albums. I'm not going to do the horn arrangements. Right. And and, and so the, the, the argument ensued from there. And I told him that I was I was there to figure out what I didn't want to do. And this oh, definitely wow. was one of the things that I didn't want to do. Now, that's, and by the way, that's pop kind of horn arrangements or, you know, that kind of thing. Orchestral is way different. I don't, yeah. I mean, or, 
writing brass for an orchestra is something I'm totally down for and I'm totally fine with. But I just felt that writing horn arrangements when you're not a horn player, when you have all these crazy techniques involved, I mean, just just call Jerry Hay. I mean, he's yeah. he's still available. I mean, just call Jerry. Guy, he's there. <laughs> he's the guy. He's the guy that wrote the horn arrangements on Thriller. I mean, just call him. He wants to oh, work. Yeah. And yep. then the teacher was like, "You can't just call Jerry Hay." And I was like, "Of course I can." What What do you mean? He goes, "Well, where are you going to get the number?" And I said, "From the local Forty Seven Musicians book." So we, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, "You can do this sort of stuff." I mean, that's. You know, <laughs> I, you know, Quincy Jones so doesn't even arrange his own horns anymore. He calls Jerry Hay. I mean, if, right. if Quincy's not going to arrange his own horns, why am I? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Quincy Jones ain't going to arrange it. Why do I have to do it? Well, it's not why I have to, but it's like you can you can opt out. I mean, I looked at Randy Newman's uh, liner notes. He didn't write all of his own string arrangements. He did some of them, but he hired other people to sometimes do it because – you know what? It's okay to to like people and to work with people and to collaborate. Also, yeah. I mean, you know, I want to do everything by myself in my own room by myself. No, right. Spe- speaking of that, yeah. Who would you say that like the coolest person that you have collaborated with? Oh, there's so many cool people. <laughs> Name a I few mean, interesting ones that were like, "Holy shit, well, this is working, different." Working on the season four um, album for American Idol with Desmond Child was fantastic. Yeah, that was sure. a really good one. Yeah. They, you know, kind of walk into you know his office in Sunset Plaza there and sit down with the guy, and and I mean that was a great one. I'm more friends with him, but you know, like there there's there's a little bit of like you know I had had Elliot Easton come over and play a guitar solo on on a on a track for me as well as some you know kind of color sort of guitar that was a good one are you ever intimidated Uh, by anybody like any musician um no i'm not i'm not i I, I knew you were gonna say i'm not i'm not i'm not i don't get i don't get starstruck either although i was so close to meeting paul mccartney had i probably met him i probably would have just i don't know if i could have handled it so but I, I was so close um i'd say paul mccartney is almost on that list yeah almost but well, i haven't yeah. worked with the guy um i know lots of people who have but um no uh, but but my biggest nemesis and in intimidation would be the red light of record <laughs> that's 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 what i get intimidated by is the red light and the record and i can get intimidated by uh deadlines and amount of and amounts of minutes to write that oh, that yeah. that can that can be like a really really um yeah and now you've been composing uh music for the show the wall for the NBC wall yes. show hosted by right. chris hardwick who i used to speak with uh when we both did like weird shifts i worked at k-rock in new york and he worked at k-rock in la that's pretty funny we used to talk about oh, really? i didn't know he worked at k-rock in la huh. yeah for a hundred years ago yeah and lebron james is executive producer i didn't realize that he is that's pretty yeah, wild. That's well, wild. So you sent us uh, some music. Is that from? Yeah, the wall? so that's that that that's one of the themes that's used within the show. Hold on, everybody. I like it. It's very epic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that was the idea um, behind it. It's got so much adventure. I love it. 
Alright, let's check out these other ones too. You got a couple other clips. Well, that would be going to commercial. <laughs> I'm serious. I know. And when's that used? Um, when they win a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really epic and it's cinematic. And, and so when I, I met the creator of the show probably back in 2011, 2012, and I'd done some music for some of his other shows that he had, which seemed to be mostly on, on CMT, um, the country music channel. And then this thing came around and I said to him, I, I said, well, I've never done a, uh, a game show. I said, you know, I've been, I've been ghostwriting these last couple of seasons of, uh, of One Tree Hill and all that. And I, I, you know, I, haven't, I don't know what a game show is. He goes, well, that's why I want you to do it. And I said, well, okay. And so I went over to his office. He kind of played me examples of things that he liked. And they're all like big cinematic from big cinematic movies. I'm like, how does that even work in a game show? <laughs> Yeah. And what's great about Andrew is that he first starting out within, the, you know, the, the industry, the media in media, he was, a, you know, a live uh, newscaster in the field for an NBC affiliate. And so wow. he imme immediately goes into the reporter voice and he does it great. You know, I you know, imagine his pitch meetings are pretty amazing because so, and he just leaves on like, oh, I totally get it now. You know, even he was having me do like sadder sounding kinds of acoustic pieces. I was like, how are you going to use that in a game show? He goes, oh, because they're doing a whole backstory s section on it because we visit these people at their homes. And, you know, he takes me through the whole thing. I'm like, oh, so it's kind of like, you know, like when they go back and like at the Olympics or at the American Idol or whatever it is. Yeah. I was like, oh, I get it. So anyway. Yeah. What's the theme of the wall as far as the show? What's the theme of the wall? Like, what is the, you know, it's a game show. What are they trying to win? Money. Money. Yeah. I know, but for um, doing what? Money. What do they get to do to get it? You answer a trivia question. And if you get the uh, trivia question correct, the ball is green and it balances down the wall and you get whatever mm -hmm. money you got right. that lands in the slot. And if you answer it incorrectly, you get the, the ball turns red and then that money's taken away from you. Um, nice. And then there are other instances that play into stuff like things start with a round called free fall where you don't answer a question. The ball, they just drop a ball and it's green all the time. And then, you know, you get whatever money's there. Questions start out easier. They get progressively harder. And, but, you know, then they also have the reverse of free fall, which is at the end of a round, they drop red balls. And so you could just lose that money. So anyway, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big roller coaster. Nice. Yeah, no kidding. Didn't you say a new season starting? Uh, January 4th. So it, was there anything in you that ever thought, did you ever have moments like maybe this music thing isn't going to work for me or did it always work out? Well, again, it kind of goes back to the teaching thing. So it wasn't really about it working out. It was just about like making sure that I'm involved in music and, and deriving income from it so I can continue to do music. Yeah, and, and so the answer is no. I mean, I had things always happen pretty quickly and I always had things come my way. However, that happened, I, I look back at it and it's, I, I think almost everything I ever auditioned for 
I never got. I remember somebody said, you should really, like, I, this guy that used to play with Alice Cooper, he was a songwriter back in the day. At that, that point in time, he had, like, a big co-write with Hart. And Dwayne said to me, he said, you, Michael, you should really go audition for Alice. I'll go set it up for you. So suddenly I found myself in a room with Alice Cooper and playing schools out. And that was a pretty, that, that was a pretty, <laughs> that's pretty out of body. Um, yeah. But yeah, playing schools out. And, and that was when the, the, the trash record was coming out. So Poison and was definitely part of the, the four or five songs. And, you know, I didn't get that gig, but that didn't matter because to me, because I was already in the band that was going to, that was, you know, that ultimately got the record deal. So, I mean, that all happened by the time I was 23 years old. You know, after that, just kind of one thing leads to another, leads to another and leads to another. And so there's always been something going on that has uh, well, made me, uh, I guess, keeps the faith. So it looks like everything worked out exactly as it should. Well, yeah, except that I'd never thought about like, oh, I'm going to compose music for a game show. So <laughs> that's, that's the right, thing. Right. You know, I mean, that's that's definitely something that I kind of keep in my brain. It's like that would that was never in my thought. I never, that wasn't well, even on my list of things. And there's a right. big thing about like pursuing your passions and your dreams is sometimes you have to be open to the way that plays out and not be set in like, you know, what if you were like, no, I only want to be in a band and I only want this and that. You're open right. to a lot of other things. I, I've really become aware of since this has happened is that it's great to try to create some piece of music that gets played often that becomes at least some part of like, pop culture in some sort of way. And so when I start thinking about like, wow, man, everybody can probably, you know, hum the Jeopardy theme. And, and, you know, I think about like, God, that family feud theme still being used. And then I like sports and like, man, boy, wouldn't it be cool to write, have written that, that Fox sports theme? I mean, these are like Monday night football. These are iconic things that last for decades and that everybody knows, but it all gets grouped in what's called production music. And there's something going on in the world where it's like, it's the same thing as like, where maybe the pecking order seems to be like, well, I'm a serious actor and I don't do television. Okay. And there's like, well, are you writing the picture or not writing the picture? I, I, I you know, I don't know. Did, 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 did the person who wrote the Monday night football theme write at the picture? <laughs> Did John Williams write the Olympic theme that NBC uses to picture? John Williams also wrote the NBC football theme. Does he writing that to picture? I don't know. Does it matter? But it does seem to matter, like kind of an importance and all that of like, who are the important composers? But give me a bunch of big, of opportunities to do big themes, you know, for content that is reoccurring that lasts for decades. That would be fantastic. Right. I like it. Yeah. I mean, that's CBS has a great football theme also, you know, and then they just this year, they brought back that um, Fox sports ball uh, for sports ball. Oh my gosh. That's, that's what, that's what Chris Hardwick calls it a sports ball. They brought, they, they brought back the Fox baseball theme for the world series that they hadn't used for a little while. Um, oh, so, right. And, you know, sometimes you do the original version, but then some, sometimes somebody punches it up and they just reproduce it because you're the writer on it. You're the composer on it. Hey, wow. you know, you're still going to receive the royalty income, which is the important thing. Well, speaking of music, guys, it's this time in the program. 
It is five o'clock somewhere on the Cause I Have To podcast. It's where we ask you five quick questions. Are you ready, Michael Lord? I'm ready. Number one, name one song that you wish you wrote and it kind of makes you mad that you didn't. Let Love Rule. All right. Let Love Rule. Lenny Kravitz. That's a good one. Jason. Everything about that song is perfect. Everything. The production's perfect. What Lenny Kravitz did on that song is the most, it's just, it's perfection. It's flawless. Wow. Nice. Wow. That's a good answer. Uh, Number two, favorite concert ever. Where, when, who? Well, it's got to be my first concert. My dad took me to it. It was Kiss, the Dynasty Tour, Anaheim Convention Center with my dad, who surprised me. I had no idea. And of course, it's all the original members. And so there's nothing that's going to top that. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you, I'm just going to give you the second one because I want to. I took my daughter to see Taylor Swift, the Red Tour. Oh, and boy. it was, Taylor Swift was amazing. I was blown away. Just huh. absolutely blown away by Taylor Swift. Just blown away. Huh. Can I edit that out? Okay, edit it out. Number three, most underrated artist. Okay, I, I'm going to tell you a favorite artist of mine that I really, really loved. Um, they've been broken up for years and years and years and years. I, I, um, I just This off the top, top of my brain, I, I have a few, but there was a band back in the late 80s called Lions and Ghosts, fronted by a guy named Rick Parker, who went on to make a couple solo albums. Um, and also, he's actually produced some hits somewhat recently, even for others, but Lions and Ghosts. They had two albums out on EMI, and I just thought they were absolutely fantastic. KROQ played them for a little bit, nice, but they were an absolutely fantastic band. Yeah, yeah, sweet. Question four. Number four, you can go back in time. What year would you travel to? Um, Are we stumping the Lord? I just... (laughs) trying to think for what purpose i'd be going back i was gonna say now you're gonna have to give the reason why <laughs> i um I, I i honestly don't know i have i have to pass oh okay. you're just gonna stay I'm, right I'm kinda, here you're I'm gonna stay right content. here in covid times i'm somewhat <laughs> well yeah that's not a great thing but you know I, I i i do sit in my studio a lot on my own i don't have to leave the house so life hasn't been that different yeah. for me um, okay question number five this is a little bit of an insider but will you admit this is true? Okay, wait, I know where I want to be. I know where I want to be. <laughs> I want it to be about 1969, 1970, here in Los Angeles, so I can experience the troubadour at that moment. Oh, yeah. Oh, damn. That That's is a good a, one. Yeah. That is a great go, answer. Go to, to Dantana's. Oh, my God. Where everybody would hang, which yeah. brings up, and I just want to backtrack for a second. Didn't get to work with the guy, but I got to have Thanksgiving dinner with Jackson Brown at Graham oh. Nash's house. Oh my that god! <laughs> That's incredible. Okay, question five. I'll say it's a little bit of an inside thing, but would you go on record saying that I, in fact, played Karma Police better than Spider Man? Oh, Spider Man. <laughs> Oh man, did I tell you that? You said that I, I was playing that, it better. In the moment, but if, if maybe it was in the moment, then, then then maybe you were, or maybe I was trying to make you feel good. I'm not sure. Huh? 
Oh well, thank God. you, Michael Lord, for being on the program. And if anyone wants to contact you, Google. Google, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have a website. It's, it's www.michaellord.com. My Instagram is just my name, Michael Lord, but with a hashtag at the end of it because there was another guy that got there before me. Oh, that's two oh. Michael Lord. No, no, not a hashtag. I'm sorry. An underscore. Michael Lord underscore. And there are two L's because there's the end of Michael and the beginning oh. of Lord. So yes. sometimes people leave that out and then it goes someplace else. Right. Yeah. Two plus two does equal five sometimes. Right. Well, as Pete Townsend said, life one in life, what one and one doesn't make two, it makes one. That's right. <laughs> that's a good one. In bargain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good line. Thank you, Mr. Lord. We feel blessed to have you. Check out the amazing music he scored on the game show The Wall on NBC. Thanks for listening to the Cuz I Have To podcast. Don't miss an episode by clicking subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the biggest things you could do to help us with this podcast is share the love and tell your friends all about it. Post it on social media. You can tag us on Instagram at at Cuz I Have To podcast and on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a great review. We'll love you forever. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at gmail.com. And if you know someone living their dharma, because they have to, and you think they'd be a great guest on the show, let us know. Till next time.